Welcome to Football with Grant Wall. Thanks so much for joining me. Our interview guest today is Janusz Michalik of ESPN and Sirius XM. You'll really like this interview. I totally enjoyed it myself. Before we get going, you can sign up for a subscription to my newsletter at grantwall.com. It has all my writing, including my new story handicapping the U.S. cities bidding to host games for World Cup 2026. I'll also be on site in Seattle next week writing about the CCL Final Leg 2. That's grantwall.com. Free seven-day trials are now available In segment one, Chris Whittingham and I will break down the soccer news. We'll have my interview with Janusz Michalik in segment two, but let's bring in Witty. How are you, my friend? I hope you're motivated by Marshawn Lynch's plea to get you to Seattle (laughs) to watch the Champions League final in person. As good of an advert for the CONCACAF Champions League as there has ever been. And there's no disputing that. Just an amazing (laughs) ad from Seattle with Marshawn Lynch. Yeah, I've watched it a bunch of times. I'm, I'm going to insert and, it into the podcast right now in this conversation and post. I'm going to, people are going to, I might have, I'll bleep the mother bleepers in there, but it's the best. All right, come on, Seattle. This is going to be a big game. Champions League final. It's a big stadium. We need to fill all these seats. Over there, over there. Up there. We need mother up in there. You see that? We could be the first MLS team to win this. Let's go, Seattle! We about to make history. Big match. Tiny dog, though. What a character. And, it, and it's working. I am going. Uh, I'm very excited to head out there. We are recording this at, it's currently 9.39 p.m. Eastern on Wednesday night. So kickoff of leg one, Pumas versus Seattle, is in about an hour. This will be coming out after the game is over, obviously. And so I would suggest that you go to grantwall.com and read my three thoughts on the game, since I can't really have thoughts right now yet. I've, I've, but, always, um, I've always wanted Grant yeah. to... Uh, yeah, I, I listen to a lot of uh, talk sport on the weekends just to kind of like mm-hmm. figure out what's going on in the Premier League. And sometimes you you can listen to a game on there and they, they, they always go to the reporter an hour before the game. And let's go live now to uh, like one of the reporters. Her name is Faye Carruthers. Let's go to Faye Carruthers. There's the team news from, from the Emirates. Faye. And she's like, it's three changes from the team that played at the weekend. I always wanted to do that. We have, we have the team news in uh, from Seattle. And I got to be honest, Grant, first choice 11 from Seattle. Player for player, everyone you'd want. Fry, Nuhu, Ariaga, Yaimar, Roldan. The three in midfield, Rusnak, Joao Paulo, Loledo. The front three, Jordan Morris, Rui Diaz, Christian Roldan. As good of condition as Seattle Sounders can be. I can't wait for someone to listen to this afterwards and after they've lost 3-0 and be like, God, you sound like a moron right now. (laughs) Thanks for that. (laughs) really appreciate it. I'm sure people will be on the edge of their seats Thursday morning uh, as they hear this news. Uh, But thanks for your Faye Carruthers impression. Um, Let's talk about a different Champions League to start, though. UEFA Champions League, men's side first here. And one of my favorite games in a long, long time, Man City 4, Real Madrid 3, and basically the opposite of any game involving Atletico Madrid. And I appreciated it. 
there was a fair amount of chaos in this game, but there was also a lot of quality. And Real Madrid looked out of it after 10 minutes. They were down 2-0, chances galore for Man City, and somehow Real Madrid does that thing that they do, especially with Karim Benzema, Luka Modric, and they get back in it. And it almost feels now like there's a slight, maybe, advantage for Real Madrid going just one goal down back home. I, I do think that it matters to some extent that Manchester City were so far and away the better side in this game. But yes. they leave it there with a really dumb penalty uh, given away by Imeric Laporte. You can't jump with your arm all the way out in the air. And probably given the significant pace disadvantage that Fernandinho has, I'm not sure you can go into that tackle with Vinicius Jr. all guns blazing and trying to win the ball off. And when the outcome, if you don't get the ball or you don't foul him, is that he's running 70 yards unimpeded. So you give away two cheap goals, in my opinion. The one from Benzema is just him in his absolute best, uh, taking uh, you know what is not really that good of a chance and turning it into something. And then you have Manchester City, who despite the fact they score four goals, I thought really had the chance to kill the game when at 2-0, they have two chances on the counter, one that Riyad Mahrez should square to the back post for Phil Foden, and said he fires it into side netting, and then another that Phil Foden uh, drags wide. So they had chances there to make it 3-0, and at that point, it just feels like a runaway freight train. But for me, the thing that most stands out in terms of why this game went the way that it did is, one, it's two teams that were up for it, but I'm surprised that Real Madrid were one of those teams that were up for it and that they didn't try to adjust somehow with Casemiro out to be a bit more solid, try and hold Man City at bay a bit more and kind of, and I, I hate to say this because I love an open game like this, be a bit more negative. Uh, now, Casemiro hopefully will be back for the second leg to make this a better occasion, but I'm surprised that Real Madrid were that open and Man City were able to play through them that easily. Yeah, I am too. I'm not going to say that I, I, I wish Real Madrid had played more like Atletico, just because I would say, and I had a, a conversation about this with someone today, that if you wanted to take 100 Americans who haven't watched much soccer and say, this is a great sport, watch this game, I would say, watch this game, you know, and, and, the, and people will get into it. They will be entertained. They will see a lot of quality. They will see some screw ups, but they will see both teams risking things, which doesn't always happen, as we well know. And, you know, like if you are a hardcore soccer fan, you sort of accept the fact that not every game is going to be great, right? And in this one, was a heck of a lot of fun for a neutral. I know you're a city fan, so I don't know if it was less fun for you, <laughs> but um, you know, I, I just really enjoyed this game. I'm very curious to see what happens in the return leg. It's certainly very possible city was the better team in this game that city advances and we might get a Liverpool city final. Uh, in Paris, and, and maybe for most people, that's the more likely scenario. Yeah, I mean, certainly on the Liverpool side, we'll get to that in a second, but yeah, I, I do think that Manchester City are going to get at least a goal away from home, and the question becomes, can Real Madrid hit for two or three? They have Karim Benzema, who's in the form of his life, having one of the best, I mean, if we had not become so inured to how many goals Messi and Ronaldo scored for the last 10 years in at such a high level... This season from Kareem Benzema would be talked about in a way that, you know, it's one of the greatest club seasons of all time. And so the fact that he is on that pitch, 
gives Real Madrid at least a decent shout to progress in this competition. I just think Manchester City are a better team and they'll probably get through, but it's going to be really close. Real Madrid are one of these teams that for whatever reason, some of it was luck on Tuesday night, but they were still able to create the chances that keep them in it. That's what Real Madrid does. Manchester City are going to have to go for the jugular in the second leg. It's not going to be easy. And I don't think it was going to be easy at any point in this tie. So there's still so much to play for. I just think Man City are better. And so they'll probably get through to the final. Let's talk Liverpool. 2-0 against Villarreal. And both goals coming in the second half of this game. Fairly lucky opening goal for Liverpool, where there's a deflection, it goes off the goalkeeper's hand into the net. Reminded me a little bit of Landon Donovan's goal in the 2002 World Cup when he was just 20 years old and, and against Portugal, where he like it was a cross and it got deflected, and then the goalkeeper just misplayed it and ended <laughs> up in the net. Um, but a big moment there because Villarreal had really shut Liverpool down to that point and you're like oh wow this could be a real issue Liverpool at home not winning the game and then Mane gets a goal a second right after that and then Liverpool doesn't get anymore it ends up being 2-0 and Villarreal even though they don't create a lot of chances isn't out of this. I think they are. <laughs> I, I think, Unless you're I, Chris Whittingham. <laughs> I think I think Liverpool are so much better. Uh, <laughs> I I normally uh, am not a bitter fan when I try and like put my neutral set on. It's why I try and overpraise Liverpool, just because like I don't want to be accused by any of my friends of being biased. But for a moment, I'm going to be biased and say that I think their run to the final of the Carabao Cup might have been more difficult than this Champions League run has been for them. <laughs> it is. Almost embarrassing how easy it has been in the quarter. Like the the quarterfinal, the semifinal stage are normally so packed with drama. So you know, like Manchester City. So like you know, you think about every stage of the competition to this point. I mean, I guess other than that, the the first leg in Porto when they just smashed him. But uh, you know, the quarterfinal, semifinal, it's been tough. Real Madrid against Chelsea was sensational. Even Real getting to this point, the, their their aggregate tie win over against uh, against Bayern Munich. It's been so lacking in drama from Liverpool. This has been easy. And it's, it's kind of strange to say that a Champions League final run is easy, but that's kind right. of what it's been for Liverpool so far. And look, Villarreal are going to be resolute. And they're defending. They'll probably get some chances on the counter. Uh, they had a couple of moments today where it looked like they were going to get into threatening positions, but couldn't turn them into goals. But, I mean, Liverpool, for me, are comfortably ahead. They're so obviously the better team. They are, in my opinion, if not the best team in Europe, the second best team in Europe. And they, I think, showed their class today. I honestly think in calendar year 2022, they are the best team yeah. in Europe. I think they've been noticeably better than, than City in their performances and their results. Um, I think, by the way, we still have yet to put together our sound maker for when you use a Britishism. <laughs> but just you saying Liverpool are instead of Liverpool <laughs> is counts. Uh, by the way, Liverpool have only lost uh, one game in calendar year 2022 and that was the i'll use another fancy ladism damn squib of a second leg against inter milan uh in the champions league final in the champions league last 16 other than that they've won or drawn every game that they've played correct so thank you for that 
<laughs> yet, a, yet another Britishism. Um, I will say this about watching Liverpool the last several games. Thiago has always been a good player, but the run of form that Thiago is on right now is absolutely incredible. And it's like every time, every moment he touches the ball is almost like perfect in a, in a just scary way. Not just like with his... the everything about it but like there's a flair to it often he is so much fun to watch right now to the point where i am just like watching him during sections of the game even when he's not on the ball that much just to see how he moves how he does does what he does because it's something that no one else is doing on the field right and i think he is certainly a player where like not to be like snobby about it but if you are someone who really knows the game, that's the kind of player that you're attracted to, right? That you watch, it's like, God, this player just has so much class. There's a reason why Pep Guardiola wanted him to follow, uh, you know, like you wanted him to go to Bayern Munich to kind of be the first player that would set the tempo in his midfield. And I honestly thought it was going to lead towards him becoming like a player that Pep would take everywhere, but it seemed like he had a little bit of a falling out, so it didn't take him to Manchester City. But it's it's so obvious that he just oozes that class. The one thing that kind of became apparent, and a lot of people talk about this with Manchester City and Pep Guardiola, but a lot of Jurgen Klopp's transfers have taken a little bit of time to settle in and really find their true form. Even when Virgil van Dijk first arrived, he wasn't completely rock solid in the way that he is now. And so it seems like his new signings sometimes take a second too, and this is certainly one of them. And the first year was not great for him, but the run that he's on, it's almost unfair to have that strong of a pressing team, that defensive presence, and then when you get on the ball, you have a central midfield player that can dictate the game, pull teams apart, has remarkable movement, and is just such a class player. You know who's a Liverpool signing who has not taken long to adjust? Luis Diaz. Yeah. That guy is pretty clearly now one of Klopp's starters for the biggest games. And that did not take long to happen. And he sort of moved ahead, it seems like, of Diogo Jota. And uh, in Firmino, obviously. Um, and, And so that has been very impressive to me to see that Liverpool's best front three is now Mohamed Salah, Sadio Mane and Lucho Diaz and he just arrived in January and it just a very impressive player uh different obviously than Thiago but certainly brings an an energy a creativity a an ability to to give Liverpool danger when they attack the goal he combines well with these other guys. It hasn't taken long for him to to find that chemistry at all. And the remarkable thing about it is that Liverpool, I always thought we're always going to find it very difficult to succession plan for the front three because they were such special players because they were so important to this era that finding the replacements for those guys, it was going to be hard to bring in players of a high enough standard to take their place and give them enough minutes to prove that. And yet, there's been such a squad rotation as a result of the Africa Cup of Nations, as a result of all the things that have happened with Liverpool, the number of games that they're playing, that Jota 
and Luis Diaz, who are the next era, have gotten enough chances to prove themselves. And both of them, I think, have taken their opportunities at various moments. What's interesting going forward, not to like kind of be, you know, sports talk radio, it's always about the transaction and what comes next, but Mohamed Salah is out of contract at the end of this year. And you wonder if Liverpool have a measure of leverage because of how well Luis Diaz is playing, because they have Jota there. It seems like the front line could survive. Do you want to test it? Um, that's a decision that would take a whole lot of character considering how popular Mo Salah is in Liverpool. But you, I think they'd be fine. But that, that's, still, that's still a massive decision to make. Yeah, I, I understand exactly what you're saying. And I, I, I follow the argument. I just don't see Salah going elsewhere. You know, I, I followed this. Fab Romano's been all over it, basically reporting that Spain is not a desired option for Mohamed Salah. And if that's the case, where else does he go? Somewhere else in England? I, I, it, that, to that would, me, that would be seem That like, would be incredibly strange. I would say, like, Bayern Munich? That's, like, the only one that could even make a little bit of sense. Maybe. I, it doesn't make sense to me more than staying at Liverpool does, to be yeah. honest. And I think he's going to get what he wants. Uh, remind me to tell you the story someday of my interactions with Mohamed Salah's agent mm. a few years ago. Uh, one of the more unsavory characters, and oh. I love Mo. Actually, great guy. I dealt with him for the, my story, wrote about him, but his agent is not a great guy <laughs> um, at all. Uh, let's stay with Champions League, but a little bit on the Women's Champions League over in Europe. Uh, very likely now that Barcelona is going to advance after their 5-1 opening leg win over Wolfsburg. Very interesting other tie where Lyon won 3-2 against PSG in the opening leg. They go back to Paris. Pretty big crowd, over 30,000 expected this weekend um, for that return leg. But Ada Hegerberg, money quote, saying that there, quote, there was football before Barcelona, and quote, it was played here at Lyon for years. Yeah. You love that stuff, right? And I, I, Ada Hegerberg is just an absolute stud. It's been a lot of fun to watch her working with Katarina Macario, who had two goals of the three the other day for Lyon. Katarina Macario scored in eight straight games, if you include her national team games and her club games. And these are big goals in Champions League. Um, and, and there's a lot of pride from Ada Hegerberg in Lyon. They won five straight Champions League titles before Barcelona won it last year. And it clearly is irritating Ada Hegerberg to see the sort of laudatory descriptions globally about the Barcelona women's team being perhaps the greatest of all time. And I would love to see a Lyon Barcelona final with more quotes like this from Ada Hegerberg and from, and from the other side as well, leading into it. Yes. These are the sorts of stories that get told over major tournaments. That's why the U.S. women's national team has always been incredibly compelling because it wasn't just about rah, 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 isn't this team great? It's no, there's, there's some drama. Like the, the World Cup for the women in France with the backdrop of the president of the United States shitposting the, his own women's national team was kind of insane. Like, and that story being told, oh, the World Cup, how poor at times the U.S. women were in the group stage in 2015 before they finally got it together and went on, you know, one of the best runs of form that we've seen from a women's national team. So these sorts of stories are part of 
the triumph and also part of how things like this enter the discourse. It's not just about, hey, isn't this great? How great is this? Great! Like, unfortunately, as a sports media culture, we stink at that. And so, get us some drama because that's how the NBA sells its stories. That's how every Champions League tie has some major drama in it. And so, that's how on the men's side and so like that's how this stuff sells so i'm i'm really i really hope this is becomes like a burgeoning rivalry and frankly in some ways it's a little bit of a compliment to leon because they dropped their standard for one year they went out of the champions right. league last year in the quarterfinal stage to paris saint-germain opening the door for barcelona to wipe out the rest of the competition and then you pair that with their form in the league, their form in the Champions League, and there is a year and a half long story now of Barcelona being the most dominant force in women's European football, and Lyon have to go take their title back. Otherwise, Barcelona are going to continue to get this sort of praise. You know, it's funny, though, because I was in Lyon uh, in the fall for my Katarina Macario story, and they were talking to me about Barcelona then. And when I visited Barcelona, they were talking to me about Lyon. So... It, in the same way that Liverpool and City seem like on a collision course for the Men's Champions League final, Barcelona and Lyon have seemed like they've been on a collision course for the Women's Final. I think that's going to happen. I kind of hope it does. And I'm hoping that Caroline Graham Hansen is the player for Barcelona to have her own smack talk reply to <laughs> her Norwegian countrywoman, Ada Hegerberg, who's mm. back on their national team, by the way. Uh, and there was a great... Uh, Caroline Graham Hansen quote in, in my story where I asked her about the final last year when they just killed Chelsea. It was 4-0 in the first half. And she told me that ahead of that game, that not only she, but her entire team knew they were going to win the game. Not only that, they knew they were going to win big. And they did. And so I hope that Caroline Graham Hansen brings out the talk howitzer ahead of a potential final against Leon. We will see if that happens. I will certainly push for it and would love to see it. Uh, NWSL, we should talk about a little bit too. Regular season starts this weekend, even though we're not done yet with the champ, the Challenge Cup. They're in the semifinals there. Um, and the two teams that so far stick out to me that are really interesting are Kansas City, which is going to host one of the Challenge Cup semifinals. They've been terrific so far, and they've even been missing some of their big-name players like Sam Mewis um, and uh, Lynn Williams. And very, very impressive. I, I, I just feel like that's a team that's totally turned things around. They were terrible last year, finished last place. Everything else about that club, that organization, has been run extremely well, very smart decisions, and now they're good on the field. And that, to me, is uh, makes Kansas City a very compelling story. And then still the champion, Washington, a team that Trinity Rodman just continues to produce. And she's still extremely young. And I get excited to watch that team in particular because of her. But they have several other players, um, you know, Sanchez, Hatch, um, that are just 
very entertaining. Completely agree. And I think, uh, particularly as it relates to Washington, uh, Trinity Rodman is just box office. And it's so cool that a player is getting that level of attention. You wonder what the next levels are for her. We already talked about it in a previous episode. We talked about that banter uh, which she had with the players from Gotham FC. So I, I just think that, you know, you talked about the Kansas City thing. I think in some ways, this season is about a new era in terms of ownership a new era in terms of you know players hopefully being heard and these issues with coaches going away soon, although it hasn't yet as a result of James Clarkson being suspended as head coach of Houston Dash. Um, but hopefully that that marshals in a new era. But I, I, I do think on that kind of wavelength, I'm curious to see what the level of support is for the teams in San Diego and Los Angeles. Uh, San Diego Wave and Angel City FC, who are garnering attention uh, in their markets, and Angel City on a bigger level. Um, it was interesting. We had uh, Kate Fagan today on the on the Levitard show, and she made a really interesting point, which was the owners of Angel City are not using professional sports to acquire more social capital, as you see, you know, some women do by sitting at courtside or going to big events. They're spending their social capital that they acquire from being major Hollywood stars on growing women's sports. Um, and so yeah. that that I think is a is a huge step in terms of growing this league, growing that team in that market. It needs something extra to break through the 147 professional sports teams that they have in Los Angeles, and it seems like they are. And I think that's really cool of those owners, and I hope that they're rewarded with a somewhat successful season and a response in Los Angeles that shows that they they have staying power, they're there to stay, and that those owners made a good and sound investment. Yeah, totally agree with all of that, including what Kate said. They're intriguing teams, too, San Diego and Angel City. I thought they would be a little better so far in the Challenge Cup. They haven't been that good. Uh, when I looked at those rosters when they first got them together, I was like, oh, wow, they could actually win quite a few games, more than Kansas City did last year as an expansion team. But so far, that hasn't really happened yet, and I'm curious to see if it ends up happening. You know, you have players like Kristen Press and Alex Morgan who are under a lot of pressure now to perform at club level if they want to have a spot or get a spot back on the national team. And I think they will do that. And we've seen both players scoring goals, but those teams are going to need those teams and those players are going to need to perform, which I think is going to be an intriguing storyline uh, for this season. So I'm excited about the season ahead with the NWSL full slate of regular season league games this weekend and you mentioned the James Clarkson suspension. It just continues the same story, right? Where all of these men who have been coaching NWSL teams are out due to suggestions of abuse, evidence of abuse. And you know, Clarkson came out on Wednesday and said he was shocked by this, but he's still suspended. And is it true that Casey Stoney is now the longest tenured head coach in the NWSL, <laughs> she just got hired. Yeah, that's that's wild. It's insane. Uh, the the turnover that there has been, the reckoning that there has been. Um, maybe this is something for for us to dig further into the podcast. But I'm still sitting here wondering why does this keep happening? What is right. what is up with men who coach in women's sports? I don't get it. It's I I I, I just don't get it. Like. You should be fairly aware at this point that it's not going to work out for you if you behave this way. 
Um, and I, I, I just, I don't get it. Now, you know, James Clarkson, uh, it, like that, the investigation and the reporting is still to be done there. Um, as you mentioned, though, the suspension, not a great sign. But I, 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 at a cultural level, there's something that I want to learn beyond just the specific instances that we've broken down. What is, a, what is the cultural, what is the bigger issue at play beyond just the very obvious gender dynamics between men and women that have existed for, you know, centuries, for forever? So I, I just don't know, other than that, which is a fairly big thing, I'd say, why this keeps happening. Yeah, and also today, I don't know if you noticed, the University of Florida women's soccer coach, a guy, uh, was fired, and suggestions of improper behavior in addition to losing first year coach had replaced Becky Burley who's a legend and just one more case and and obviously look there are some women who have been implicated over the years Vera Powell was the former Houston Dash coach lots of allegations of uh, improper treatment of players by her um you know Elise LeHue uh the GM uh former GM of Gotham uh, was pushed out after an investigation. So, uh, but the fact is, it's more men uh, that we've seen. Men, men who have been head coaches of NWSL teams. More investigation results to come. So we'll see where that goes. But in any case, it's always great to talk with you. Thanks so much, Chris. Thanks, Grant. Now, here's my interview with Janusz Michalik. Our guest now is one of the most astute thinkers of the game in the United States. Janusz Michalik works for ESPN and Sirius XM in the United States and in Poland for TVP Sports. He had a 19-year pro playing career and 44 caps as a defender with the U.S. men's national team. He played professionally indoors and in outdoor soccer in the first couple of years of MLS. So there's a lot to talk about here. Janis, it's great to see you. Thanks so much for coming on the show. Oh, it's my pleasure, Grant. Uh, it's going to be great. It looks like you're in some si- sort of a silo, like a professional studio. I it, love it. It looks professional, but don't be deceived. <laughs> I know we're an audio podcast, but it looks like I'm in a sauna or something. I'm actually at my oh, yeah, work facility in New York where they have these little cabins that have uh, sort of a wood interior, but um, yeah, it, it makes for an amusing image, I guess. I'll have to post a picture no, at some it's, point. It's good. It's, you should, you should. But uh, we're recording this on Monday. We're coming out Thursday, and obviously there's a lot going on in between, including the Champions League semifinal opening legs. But the first thing I want to ask you is actually pretty straightforward because you are always on top of so much that's happening in the soccer world. And I'm wondering, how many full games of soccer do you watch in a week and how do you do it? Yeah, I don't know. Uh, A blessing and a curse. Uh, (laughs) As I get older, I find... No, really, I mean... uh, I, I do watch a lot, although, I mean, let's be honest uh, these days. I mean, watching, you know, two or three games at the same time or so many games, you know, I wish I could, uh, I, I, you know, study that a little bit closer. It's difficult these days, right? I mean, uh, it's a big word saying watch it and you've seen everything. I, you know, I find myself, I'm sure just like you and your listeners going back because I've missed something or afterwards I, you know, I thought that, my goodness, I think I've seen everything. And then I see on Twitter, you know, there was a penalty shot. I'm like, what penalty shot? I don't, I didn't see it. Well, how can you when you watch two or three at the same time? But I do watch a lot, as I've said. I mean, it's, 
it has helped me because you know me fairly well. I think I'm kind of, you know, I don't want to say jack of all trades, uh, master of, of none, but to a degree, uh, my versatility uh, helps me. But there are often times where I wish where I had just one thing to concentrate on as well. I mean, you know, in our business, as you know, I don't know which is a better way to survive and stay within the industry. But, you know, here we are. Yes, I do watch a lot. I, I, I've never counted, you know, uh, uh, but but I, you know, obviously on the weekend with so many leagues playing, it's quite a few. It also depends a lot of, uh, on the uh, assignments I get from ESPN. So. I mean, it just seems to, like to me from following your Twitter that basically the major European leagues you're up to speed on. And I know for SiriusXM, I used to do work for them. Like mm -hmm. you always had to be ready for call-ins, especially from people to like be mm -hmm. knowledgeable about all sorts of different leagues. But what I found in my experience is like, I don't have the bandwidth to watch the English championship. Yeah, I've had to make mm -hmm. some decisions. And right. as of right now, like the Mexican League, I, it's I, it's hard for me to be totally on top of everything that's happening in that league. Honestly, with MLS, now that there are 28 teams and so many games, it's getting harder to be on top of everything in MLS. Like, what are the countries that like you watch games from basically every week? Well, I mean, obviously the Premier League is is the big one. It has to do with Sirius a lot and with ESPN because, you know, I mean, I, you know, I seem to, you know, our roles change constantly, you know. So uh, at the moment uh, with ESPN and social media, you know, the YouTube channel is really big and we do the, those hits after the games where you actually talk about the game, what happened. So that's a big one at, uh, uh, for me at ESPN and, and obviously uh, with Sirius because um, Monday, tonight, uh, Keith Costigan and I will have a three-hour show about Premier League so you know for three hours it's not easy you better be watching that you know all those games right so that's something that I watch uh, I, I'm involved with the Bundesliga from time to time at ESPN or Pokal so that you know we have the rights to that and La Liga as well I I've only I mean I, I don't really work with La Liga in terms of commentary I think at one time I I, had, I was filling in for somebody, but I feel like uh, I have to because uh, you know what if I get that assignment? You know I'm I'm one of those kind of you know one of those guys where I almost have to right? I mean I I could wing it some you know some shows and watch highlights. It's just not in my nature. And I don't want to say it just because, you know, to show people how hard I work. I work hard. It's just in my nature. And I always feel that when I go on one of these shows, I don't want a caller or somebody in the comments to say, no, you didn't watch that. That's not what happened. And and of course, I know that I will not see everything. Right. I mean, you know, if I'm comment commenting or, you know, doing a recap on Arsenal against Manchester United, uh I may not see all of it, right? Like, a, you know, a, a viewer the other day, you know, commented on my, he says, well, you've missed this. And he's right. If he only pays attention to that one game and one game only, he'd probably pick up on some nuances that I've missed because, you know, there are four other uh, uh, Premier League games that I'm watching at the same time and possibly a Bundesliga, you know, Dortmund against Bayern Munich. And, um, you know, I'm keeping an eye on Barcelona, Real Madrid. So, but I try. I, I try to desperately watch everything. And, 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 and you know, I go back on... 
highlights during a game or, you know, Reddit, I'm sure you know. I mean, Reddit is incredible because they post a, a lot of stuff in case you miss it and you have no chance of, of seeing it. So so I do work on a lot of leagues, but the, the major leagues as well. Uh, and MLS, I try it, but I'm, I'm with you on that one. That's a whole different story because I love MLS. I worry a little bit. I mean, some of it has nothing to do with major league soccer. They're playing games when they're playing games. I do get tired, but, it, you know, the league is so big. It's impossible. It's impossible. Uh, I don't know if they're, you know, how, how to solve that, but they, I know owners want it. I'm getting ahead of myself, but, you know, to have eight, nine, ten, ten games on a Saturday night, it's, it's just incredible. Who can possibly watch it? And, you know, they shouldn't be surprised that ratings sometimes aren't great. Yeah, it's going to be interesting when there's 32 teams in MLS and just how many games that's going to be, mm-hmm. even 30. I mean, it's it's tough to keep up with all of it. But because you do consume so much, though, from around the world, I feel like I can ask you this question and get a good answer. What are some of the things you're most excited about in the soccer world right now and why? I mean, nothing changes. You know, I was thinking about that the other day, you know, because somebody asked me, what do you look in games? Because you, you've mentioned, I mean, I like my tactics, but I, I understand that tactics in games get boring sometimes, right? We just want to be entertained because we do consume so much of football and, and nothing has changed. You know, I can sacrifice great quality. You know, I've often said, what a great game. And somebody says, oh, that was terrible, terrible defending goals. I'm like, yeah, you're right. But you know what? With so much to see, I want excitement. I'm like a little kid and nothing's changed with me. What's very important to me that the stadium's full. I love when fans are loud and singing, right? I mean, if I see a great game, but I see half empty stadium, I, I, I just, it's not for me. It really isn't. And, and because it is entertainment, it is about excitement. It is about remembering when I was a little kid and going to those stadiums and screaming and yelling and, and singing as well, right? I mean, it's a, it's something that I kind of miss because it's different here. You know, I've been here, you know, 36, seven years, whatever it's been now. And, you know, that's still one part that I'm waiting for it to develop to that degree. And, you know, I, I hope I don't sound like a Euros now because as I've just mentioned, I, I've been here you know, for most of my, you know, life uh, here, you know, uh, this is the country I live in, you know, and, 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 and I love so, so, but I still think sometimes we're far away from that, you know, because it's, it's not easy to get excited about a game. There, there, there are spots in Major League Soccer, of course, we have two or three, you know, teams that have great atmospheres, full stadiums, and you could sort of feel that. Uh, but it's still not at that level. So that that's what excites me. The rivalries excite me, the big stories, the, the big teams. Not to say that I don't like, you know, minnows or, or smaller teams, of course. Uh, and, and I've watched plenty of games where people, you know, I mean, if, you know, Red Star, if I know Red Star is playing Partizan, I'm there, you know, <laughs> if it's uh, Galatasaray, uh, you know, against Besiktas or Fenerbahce, maybe, you know, the Besiktas these days is, is good. I'll watch it. And I'm not telling them minnows, calling them minnows, right. Grant, but in a big scope of things, we don't have time to watch those games, right? Because the Premier League Serie A, I haven't even mentioned Serie A, obviously. This is a, another one that I watch very closely, although we did lose the rights. And, and you know that I'm, um, I was sad when that happened. Yeah. Uh, you know, congrats to our colleagues at CBS. Uh, but, you know, I, I, it sounds, you know, I think I've covered that league for the last 20 years. And uh, I miss it 
not being involved on every, you know everyday basis, although I watch it uh, religiously. You know, it's pretty hard not to think these days about Liverpool and Man City, I think, in part because they've played each other quite a bit recently. They're pretty clearly the two best teams in England. Maybe the two best teams in Europe might be on a collision course to meet in the Champions League final. Still don't know who's going to win the league. Um, what about Liverpool and Man City right this moment stands out to you about these two teams? First, immediately, the managers, leaders, the, you know, what, what they do, how great they are. Two, I mean, I just did that piece yesterday, some pushback, because, you know, I mean, I, I'll disclose my bias, of course. I've been a Liverpool fan for a long, long time. Uh, you know, people ask me, how can you? I, I, ever since I remember, I, you know, when I was growing up in Poland, we only had two foreign leagues on television. That was, uh, uh, you know, Bundesliga and 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 Premier League and you know Liverpool in those days in seventies and eighties, you know my colleague Stephen Nicol, the great teams. It was easy to jump on that bandwagon because you know, I mean Liverpool actually played beautiful football. Whereas maybe most of the league, if you remember, that was that old school a little bit. The pitches weren't great. I mean, uh, you know the, the, that wasn't you know inducive to play some great football, right? That's not what Premier League or or you know first division back then was known for. But I I did jump on that bandwagon and I'm. Still on it, uh, but you know I, I I respect both Pep Guardiola and Klopp. And yesterday I you know I was doing a piece for ESPN, and I said I you know because there's a fight within me. There's a thin line. Who's the better manager? Yeah. And you know Pep was. I love the tiki taka, as you know. I I loved how Barcelona played. But I think Klopp is better. But anyway, uh, so ho that'll be in your comments because I'm sure slightly, slightly. But, you know, these two managers are incredible. And, and we know how, that, how important that is. I mean, look what's happening with Manchester United, you know, where Sir Alex has left, right? Look what has happened to Arsenal, you know, for over the years. And, you know, as great as it sounds, it's going to be interesting to see what happens to Liverpool uh, when Jurgen Klopp leaves, or or Manchester City when Pep goes as well. This is how important leaders. I mean, obviously they have to know football. I mean, you know that's, but but I think they're just incredible leaders of men, and you can see that game in and game out with, uh, you know, what it takes to play football these days. Every two or three days on such level where every game is a massive game where there's so much pressure, and and it seems like their players don't feel it. So. You know, it kind of brings me back to El Clasico, doesn't it? Pep against Mourinho, remember? Yeah. That's important. I mean, the teams, the fans, everything's important. But that rivalry between the managers, maybe, or how good they are is also uh, uh, just as important. So, yeah, Klopp and Pep Guardiola jumps at me immediately. Is there something out there right now in the world of soccer that you're entertained by and you're enjoying that you think is kind of an undercovered story hmm. right now from wherever an undercover story in the world of football uh well i mean for a while was you know i'm just waiting and looking at the shift between club football and and international football because those lines are getting right i mean I, and i may have even talked with you about, or I'm sure you've had guests, right? We always say, you know, representing your country is so important. You know, international football will never die. And I don't think it will, but you can see, right? I mean, the friendly is going away. Many people will say, well, that's great. But I think there's less and less of that. And slightly, 
you know, but surely I think club football is taking over a little bit, right? Yeah. I mean, aside from the World Cup and, and what? And, you know, maybe, let's be honest, European Championships and, you know, Copa America. And again, don't want to be elitist because I do watch African Cup of Nations and all that. But, you know, I, I, you know, some of these competitions, I don't want to say are less important, but I have a, a feeling that I've had for a long time now that club football is really, really taking over that. And, you know, with the talk about Super League, also now you see the reaction from international football just the ideas you know World Cup every two year yes it's about money but I I have a feeling it's also about relevance because I think maybe UEFA FIFA and Copa America wanting to merge right Copa America there's talk with UEFA I think they sense it that they better do something otherwise club you know the elite club football is going to take over and I don't think that's good yeah I, I I've noticed this and talked about this with a few people over the years that it certainly does seem like in terms of level quality of play that the UEFA Champions League now is pretty far beyond the World Cup. And, and I think most people who watch a lot of soccer think that. There may be some people who disagree, but I like because national team coaches don't get their players very often, it's harder for them to introduce anything complicated or semi-complicated mm -hmm. tactically like you can do at the club level players aren't as familiar with each other and part of me did wonder if they do end up someday switching the calendar around so that there's fewer international windows in a year but players are with their national teams longer at a time for more games that maybe that might have a, a potential positive impact on chemistry level of play i don't know it's, it's just sort of throwing the idea out there but i feel like also international soccer has fewer top coaches now than it used to that cl the club game really has started to monopolize the best coaches in the sport in a way that didn't even used to happen as much right and and you know i mean you know we I think in Europe and 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 in South America, maybe you know that word because here we're talking about coach of the national team. You know, it's a selection, right? I mean, the word for the word for national team manager is that, right? I mean, we don't have an equivalent of that in in English language. And same in Polish, we we do have that because mm -hmm. that's what it is: a selection. Is it you know just come in, you select the players that are not necessarily the best, but they're going to be the best for the group and for that particular time, say the World Cup's coming up, right? Because there's often, often, you know, that fight. I can't believe so-and-so didn't make the World Cup squad. And, you know, we, we do have to remember that's a selection and it's, it's unusual to get somebody for four weeks, right? And this time it's going to be even less because uh, it is in November, December. I think there's only going to be a week ahead of that, right? Normally you have two, three weeks of, or, or even a month uh, of preparation. So... Yes, I, I can see, but I, I, the thing is, I mean, I will never, you know, I hope that the international game exists. I think it will. I think the World Cup is super important, just like, uh, just like all the, you know, confederations and their competitions uh, with it. And I, I'm sure I'm dating myself because I'm hearing a lot, you know, a lot of people, uh, you know, talking to me say, well, Champions League is better than the World Cup. I mean, I've heard that from enough people that I, I had to address that, you know. I'm not saying it's majority. I hope it's not. But I'm like, come on, you know. I mean, when you were a little kid, you came out and, you know, when I played and, and 
you know, pickup games and you, you know, you're imagining things and you're scoring in the last minute in your little pickup game, you know, 5v5 to small goals, you know, you go, Yeah, Malik, 91st minute, World Cup, five. like, I know the Champions League didn't exist there, but European Cup did. Yeah. And it was just as good, if not better, because only, uh, well, you know, only the winners uh, uh, were there. So I know that the kids don't go out there and play like we did anymore. You know, that's just a fact. Uh, so I don't know. I, I, I'd i have to ask somebody that has, you know, five, six, seven-year-old kids now, if they do play and, you know, do they envision themselves in the final of the Champions League? Or the final of the World Cup. I just think that we're all pretty nationalistic in our core, in our game. I think we're all proud, you know, about where we come from or where we've played. You know, in my case, I have, you know, it's easier for me because I always have two countries to uh, to cheer for. But but I think to me, it's it, it, the World Cup. The World Cup for me is the pinnacle of our sport, and it's not even close. And, and you know, I wanted, you know, as you know, and everybody knows, I, I was one of the last cats being on the national team for four years. From the beginning, almost till the end, didn't make it. And to me, it was easily, easily the biggest disappointment in my life because that's how much World Cup meant to me when I was growing up. Mind you, Poland was incredibly good. That 74 team, I remember like it was, you know, I was eight years old, but, you know, that was the best, you know, Poland could have won the World Cup and oh, maybe yeah. should have won the World Cup in 74, you know. Uh, so so that shaped my life, shaped my career. That You know, 74, then 82, well, 74 Poland came third and 82 they came third as well, right? Uh, in a sh- 78 wasn't that horrible World Cup. My colleague Mario Campos made me cry. Um, Argentina beat Poland um, uh, and he scored both goals, I think. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, but, but, you know, so that, that's what shaped my life. Now, maybe with some of the younger kids now, I don't know if, or players, younger players, if the World Cup shapes their life or, or Champions League or maybe some other competitions, I don't know. I, I feel like I should be clear here. I get p- most excited about the World Cup, you know, more so than I do for Champions League, which I also love. It's just different. I do feel like the higher level of play now is probably at the Champions League, but that doesn't mean it's bad at the World Cup or anything. Um, And I do believe the United States as a soccer country in particular is a country where international soccer still matters a lot in the growth of the sport here, more so than I think probably the Champions League does, even though that importance is growing as well. I I just remember doing a a search of Google Trends a few years ago on Christian Pulisic and some of the biggest moments he had early on in his career in the Champions League. Mm -hmm. And the amount of interest in the United States was far greater in Christian Pulisic on Google when he had scored two goals against Trinidad and Tobago for the U.S. men's national team than when he scored a huge goal for Dortmund to send them to the Champions League quarterfinals. So clearly still what moves the needle most in the United States is the World Cup, World Cup qualifying. Um, But the club game has grown, obviously. Um, You mentioned this, and I was going to ask you later on, but I'm going to bring it up now because we're talking about the World Cup. You were kind of famously one of the last cuts for the 94 World Cup. You had played a lot with that team under Boromir Lutinovich. Uh, that World Cup obviously was in the United States. You said it was the most disappointing experience of your career. I, what was that like? What happened? You know, I remember, 
Well, first of all, it's true, but you know, there are ways when disappointment comes that you're trying to justify it to yourself and, and some people try to justify it to others more so than to yourself. I remember, and you know, I kind of, I don't know if I, you know, I can't give myself credit, but, but I remember when it happened, I, because, you know, I often, if a player has a disappointment, doesn't make it somewhere, doesn't play, whatever it is, it's often, well, coach, or I had an injury, or there was none of that. I mean, the truth, truth of the matter is, although I could have gotten lucky somehow, at the end of the day, I had to sit down with myself and say, well, I wasn't good enough. There was something in those last moments, you know, remember, and I, I've mentioned selection because it's important, right? Because... It, I don't know. It's it wasn't political, but when you're making those decisions, a lot goes into it, right? I mean, who can play this position or that position? Who can? I don't know what it was because I never, you know, found the answer. And to be honest with you, I never. I I said to myself, I I didn't want to know. I, I didn't want to seek an answer to 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 why. Even if there was a definitive answer to that, what what good does it do? It just makes you go crazy, even more. So so I mean things could have happened, right? I mean, I was so close and I, you know, I know I could have played a couple of different positions, which I did uh, uh, on that national team. But but at the end of the day, you know, you're only as good as your last game. And in that sense, the, the last, I don't know, say five, six, you know, when the, when the decision starting to take place, there was something there where the coaching staff sat down and says, well, we're going to be better off taking this person instead of that person. And and ultimately, that that's what I stand on it because, you know, I mean, I was healthy. I was in good form. I, I was fighting, um, you know, for that spot like anybody else. There, there wasn't an excuse that I could say, well, yeah, you know, I mean, I didn't play last month or the couple months before because I was injured and I couldn't. There was none of that. I didn't have any, any injuries. So so that's what it was. And and it was disappointing because, you know, I was there literally from the very beginning of that squad. When Even before, you know, Bora came in and John Kowalski had that, you know, interim tag for, I don't know how long, a couple mm. games or a, couple, a month or so. Uh, and, and, of course, I mean, I don't know who was the last guy. It was me and, I don't know, Dominic Goose. I, I don't. Uh, it was. I mean, it was right there in the end uh, on the beach in California. We all, rem- you know, uh, I, that story's been told on the rock uh, where Bora and I sit down, and we knew without saying any words what, what that conversation was about. Yeah, I I went back and I, I I saw a story in the L.A. Times from then. I think Desmond Armstrong was the other one in that group who was cut. Desmond Goose, myself, and maybe Hendo. I don't know if it was. Uh, I can't remember exactly and who went for, you know, I, I think I think I went either last or second to last because I know I know Brian Quinn knew before we even went to the beach uh, in, in, in our training center. Um, I've seen Desmond having a conversation before, way, you know, but it doesn't really matter, does it? If it was last, second, third or fourth, it, it, it makes no difference, right? I mean, certainly... We don't take pride in that I was first or second, you know, we don't know. If it would be possible to go back a little further, what's, I want to get into your story a little bit. Like, at what point did you first come to the United States? Well, you know, remember, well, my my father came here in 76 to the old NASL, you know, with Pelle, Cruyff and all those, you know, I mean, the, the, the great, you know, 
it was more towards the end of NASL, but still many great players played, right? I mean, uh, in Poland, uh, uh, you know, there's a story, and actually it's funny because I read about Zibi Bonig because he was one of those players as well. In Poland, you couldn't leave. It was a communist Poland when I still when I was still there. You couldn't leave until you turned 30, and only special players in sort of saying thank you for your career. You know, and my father was the captain of the Polish First Division team. He's been with the National Olympic team. So... So he was allowed to leave. He had a choice of going to France, United States, and uh, and came here to play for Hartford Bicentennials. Uh, and and um, and you know, but that was '76, and and I was never really thinking about coming here. You know, my parents were divorced, and uh, you know, he was here. Then ultimately, he decided to stay here after his, you know he played a couple two or three years. Uh, obviously, he came here towards the end of his career, and and. I came here in 82 and 83, I think, okay. for vacation. And, you know, could have, I suppose, stayed, but I was already, as I mentioned, signed my first contract, you know, with the first division team, my dad's team and my team. Uh, um, when I was 16, I started to play for the Polish national team, junior national team under 15s, taking a couple of trips. Things were great, you know. I went back, then didn't really think about it. And I came back the next year for vacation and... and you know, with all the talks, I mean, it was communist Poland. I don't you know, the decision wasn't made because of that. I mean, I was still 17 years old. I didn't really care the, you know, communist party and all that didn't really. But, you know, as a family, we sort of made that decision that, that you know, maybe this is the, the time. Uh, uh, but really, that's that's how it happened. It was mainly because my dad came here to play soccer right otherwise probably this destination would never have come up certainly not in those years when you know poland was still behind the uh, iron curtain that's fascinating and in the 80s u.s pro soccer was in an interesting place because the nasl folded i think 1982 um and then indoor soccer the major indoor soccer league was starting to get more popular and, mm -hmm. you know, I grew up in Kansas City being a Kansas City Comets fan and going to games there and it was sold out in Kemper Arena and really exciting. And, um, and you ended up playing indoor and outdoor in your professional career. Like, what were the, what were the 80s like from your perspective as a young player in this country? You know, it, it was a big unknown. I mean, you know, I have these conversations with younger players. I mean, it's great to see, you know, you know, Major League Soccer right now. I mean, we'll get to it. You know, I never thought the time would come. And I, I certainly, because I obviously I'm one of the originals in, in, in MLS in 96. Uh, so I can say that even even when it started, I remember saying to myself, there's no chance that lasts, you know, like it's just maybe it was that negative negativity from the years before, because I've been a part of like six or seven leagues that folded. I mean, I'll tell you what it was for, but you know, one of my second team was Louisville Thunder. Keith Tozer, you know, who's now back with MASL now. I think it's it's called. You know, I mean, we won the national championship and we folded. You know, immediately <laughs> after the team folded, it was that kind of you know, so many different leagues. AISA, MI. So look, yeah, that that's why people like could understand my decision to stay, and I still don't have an answer. It was one of those things where you know, speaking with my dad, with my mom, you know, kind of said, well, maybe this is this could be something, but it certainly wasn't something that was in terms of my soccer career at that time. That was probably the worst thing I could have done. 
You, you know what I mean? I mean, it wouldn't be one where somebody says, yeah, you know what? Go over there. There's no outdoor league. You're currently playing for the Polish junior national team. You've signed a contract with the first division team in Poland. The smart money is on you to go to the United States and and uh, and play indoor soccer with bo- hockey boards, you know? <laughs> Which, by the way, when I first came here, I didn't even know I was going to do that. I didn't know such game existed, to be quite honest, I, you know. <laughs> So, so when I came here, you know, two weeks, I stayed, you know, I'm still in Connecticut, uh, in the same town that I came in, you know, uh, in Glastonbury, Connecticut. My dad, you know, through indoor people, uh, you know, oh, John Kowalski, of course, who was a big, big help in my career at the time, MISL, as you know, because you were a fan of Kansas City Comets. Um, you know, I, I had a contact with Pittsburgh Spirit, who are a great mm-hmm. team, and John Kowalski had five or six of some of the most famous Polish players on that team. They're great. Stan Terlecki, everybody knows him. Yep. Uh, obviously, recently passed away, uh, but, you know, he played for Cosmos later on. He was a great player. Uh, and any others, and I'm not going to mention names because most of your listeners won't know, but they were first division legitimate top players play for the nas- national team. And John had a little Polish colony in Pittsburgh of six or seven. So I went there and, you know, introduced me, to, I think trained with them a couple of times and, and, but I remember John telling me, see, he goes, listen, I think they may have, may have been, you know, it was during the season where they've lost few games. He goes, listen, if I sign another Polish player, they're going to kick me out because we're not doing too well, right? Because he already had literally six or seven Polish players. So I'm like, well, that's great. Uh, but he goes, but listen, but listen, I'm trading Chris Sobieski, who was, you know, played for Legia, starting goalkeeper for play for Poland and you know was a great goalkeeper and and major you know to to Cleveland Cleveland Force and there's a coach who later has been with me my entire career and whom I love Timo Lekowski was uh yep. uh was of course the the head, head coach he later was our uh, assistant coach with the you know 94 team uh throughout the years who later when major league soccer started uh you know took me to Columbus Crew so uh that's how I first met Timo, and and I it seems like I've been with him for, you know, half of my life. Uh, um, but you know that's how it started. I loved every minute of it. Those that I remember, I mean, major indoor soccer. I just you know I, I got injured, of course, uh, uh, in the first preseason when I got the seventeen year old. I mean, total reconstruction of my knee. And back oh. then, if you you know those those are like back then it was career ending injury. That's what everybody. Or most of it. It took me, I think, twelve to thirteen months to come back from that. Wow. So, uh, you know, as you know, I was there. I wasn't playing, but I just loved every minute of it. Um, you know, I mean, Darth Vader, the the theme to Star Wars. Uh, George Lucas later sued uh, Cleveland Force for that, uh, for the copyrights. But you know, I mean, Cleveland. You know, the the Richard Coliseum, twenty thousand every game. I tell the story because it's funny, and I think it's worth uh, worth telling because. Uh, you know, Cleveland Cavaliers back then, I remember a point guard, you probably even remember, World Be Free, yeah. that was his name. Uh, you know, if the Cavaliers in NBA had 5,000 people at the game, they were happy and lucky, you know. Yep. They, were asking us for, they were asking us for tickets. So there you have it. Uh, <laughs> uh, quite different the way NBA is now, uh, I suppose. Uh, but it was a great time. I, I'm really, 18,000, 19,000 average. Uh, yeah. For every game, and you know when like San Diego Soccer's with, you know Clavijo came in and Julie V and oh, yeah. uh, Branco Segota, great players. Uh, Zongo came in. That's you know twenty twenty one thousand standing room only. It's a uh, tremendous tremendous memories from that. 
Yeah, no, that's great stuff. I'm excited just listening to these stories as a kid who used to hate the uh, the Cleveland Forest in a good way, though. <laughs> but, <laughs> we, we were awesome. Kai Hoskivi. I, yep. I, I, we had some Phil, you know, uh, Phil Murphy. I mean, well, uh, Ward and uh, Benny Dargo. I mean, some great players, foreign yep. players that played in the Premier League or, or, you know, top division in England. I mean, there's a lot of a lot of great uh, players there. Bernie James, of course, who now, you know, yeah, more American player. No, definitely. Um, and at what point did you start to think about becoming a U.S. citizen? Because obviously, if you played for the U.S. national team, you became a citizen at one point. Yes, but it, funny enough, because people, of course, right away somehow think that I did this on purpose. No, I mean, I, at no point did I think of becoming a citizen for the purpose of playing for the U.S. national team. Okay. It, it, it wasn't. Matter of fact, if I did, then I would have had a chance with John Kowalski to go and play against Poland in Warsaw at Legia Stadium, which is the team that I hated the most because, you know, <laughs> I was playing for Guardia Warsaw, big derby, you know. Uh, but but I I did everything like any, any citizen or any person in this country would. Mm -hmm. uh, you know, I mean, obviously I had a green card and because my father was a citizen by then already, uh, we started the proceedings and, and the, 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 the laws and back then were that you had to be in this country for five years while holding a green card. Unlike, you know, some of my former teammates more recently were next thing you know, they get a green card right away and, and the citizenship is ran through Washington. Somehow it's quicker. None of that. I had to wait five years. It just so happens that timing of it was almost perfect. I mean, it was perfect for me to to join the national team under Bora. But I remember John Kowalski called me, said, listen, we're going. We have a friendly game in Poland. Uh, uh, and, you know, I, I, I would love for you to come. And, and I was like a month short. And two months later, three months later, whatever the timing was, I did get it, but not in time for that. So so. I mean, I don't need to dispel any rumors because I'm sure, you know, no nobody uh, is talking about this but you and I. Uh, but I, I didn't set out to play for the for the U.S. national team or, or to get my citizenship because I wanted to play for the national team. I, I, at that time, I didn't even think of it because there was no outdoor league. It was yeah. hard to fathom. I was playing indoor soccer for, you know, three or four, whatever it was. There wasn't a true professional league. Later on, I played, uh, you know, I started to play bef just before national team with the A-League where, you know, the Vancouver Whitecaps and Sounders and Portland uh, Timbers were, you know, just for those that think that, you know, those three teams just started playing in the right. in MLS. There were great teams way before that. And, and I truly mean it. They were very professionally ran in a semi-professional league. Uh, but... That was my reality, not true professional environment by any. I mean, within the indoor league, that was professionally done. But it just, you know, like when I first came and, and first stepped in indoor soccer with the boards and turf, I was like, what, what, what is this about? I mean, you know, I had to learn, you know, ricochets, how to play off the board. Which, you know, I mean, it seems simple. It's logical. You pick up th that stuff, you know quickly but it does take time there's yeah. certain nuances that you have to learn so to me the national the, the the notion of playing for the u.s national team was nowhere near my thinking 
I've been doing some research recently, more than even I had before, into the U.S.-Mexico soccer rivalry through the years. And one thing that's become clear is the 1991 Gold Cup in which the U.S. beat Mexico in the semifinal mm -hmm. and then went on to win the final was a big moment in the rivalry's history because Mexico had totally dominated the U.S. through the decades. Uh, just so much winning by Mexico, very little by the United States. And that 91 Gold Cup semifinal was big. You were with that group, right? Like, what, what, what yeah, do you remember? I started, I, start, I started, I pulled my hamstring in the first, towards the first, towards, I don't know when, but in the first game against Trinidad Tobago, I started that game and I pulled my hamstring. So, I mean, obviously I was with the team, you know, on the bench, but I couldn't play, but it, it was massive. It, it, it was massive uh, because, you know, I mean, that was the, first of all, it was the first Gold Cup. Right. I mean, there was right. a, whatever it was called before, I can't even remember, but it was the very first Gold Cup, right? Which is, of course, the equivalent of Copa America or, or, yeah. or, or European Championships. And, uh, and it is important, by the way. I still talk to people, oh, Gold Cup, this, go. No, it's super important. It's, it's, you know, it's our confederation. That's what we, you know, that's what we need to do first to, to win that. So, uh, and obviously we knew that something was, something new was happening. Bora came in and that was, that was the true beginning of the preparation to 1994 World Cup, right? And we needed to, you know, I mean, obviously as a team, you needed to bond, but success is important. And if you can get it early, it just builds you, right? And I think without even thinking too much, now in retrospect, when you look at that, it came at a perfect time because it came early. Sometimes you wait, you know, you build, you train, and you can't win. It's not like we were expected to win many things, right? I mean... So, so I think that I remember that distinctly. I think the bonding within the group was tremendous, right? Yes, we had our issues. You know, Bora came in and you know how he was, a whirlwind, you know, here and there and everywhere. And, you know, and, and, but, but somewhere in between, he did create a good collective. I mean, there's so many great things about Bora, so many maybe negative. You find that with every manager, right? But I think he knew what it was going to take, right? I mean... He was tedious. We trained forever, twice a day, and all that. But I think he understood that we needed the not only culture of winning, but also culture of understanding who he may face in that World Cup. And I remember that many times when, you know, we used to go to Laguna Beach, which, by the way, I just visited a couple of weeks ago because <laughs> my son is out in LA and I went to Mission Viejo. Uh, the bar, I forget the bar, the Irish pub that doesn't, actually is not there. I was shocked. I was oh, like, no. what, what happened? How, how can an Irish pub go bad, you know? <laughs> uh, and we used to go there to watch Champions League because Bora would make us, because, you know, big games weren't available yet on TV like they are right, right. now. And, you know, I remember a couple of my team, a lot of people were like, oh, here we go again. And, and I remember Boris saying, look, some of these players you may be facing four years from now. You surely need to know. You know, I mean, they're big names, great. You know, everybody, the Romarios of the world, Bebetos, whatever it was, right? So I, I think winning the Gold Cup was super important. It started to build that culture. You know, we tasted you know, a win yeah, in, in a big competition against a massive, massive team, you know, like Mexico. I mean, be, we were nowhere near them, but, you know, then the final was, I think, what, Honduras, wasn't it? In the yeah. final penalties, I think. I think back then, the next Gold Cup, we went to uh, final as well. I'd never forget that. I was on the bench in that final against Mexico B team because they didn't send the first team. And the Azteca, I was like literally 120,000 people. Remember those games at noon? <laughs> 
smog, hot. I mean, it was. A, I remember going from the, you know, in Azteca, I don't know if it's the same now, but you kind of had to go through that like a spiral staircase, you know, like up okay. from below. And, you know, with the smog, I mean, I was winded just going like on the pitch for the warm-up, we're done, you know, with the altitude <laughs> and all that. I think that was the game where Kobe Jones actually had to come off because he had breathing problems. I mean, yeah. it, they literally on the bench had to give him air. And, you know, Kobe could run forever. I mean, Kobe you know, in terms of fitness and, you know, he could run three games and you wouldn't know it. So, uh, so, so that was the 93 goal cup where we lo- I think they hammered us four nil, uh, I think in the final, if I, if memory serves, it was one of those games. I was like, well, thank God I wasn't out there. Uh, uh, in that, fi- you know, final, but so that was important. The culture and the first goal cup, I think hindsight from, you know, just looking back on it, maybe we don't give it enough importance. So I'm glad you asked that. Yeah, no, it's interesting. And and you did talk a little bit earlier about the start of MLS, which was in 1996. And how different was it then compared to now for a player? Hmm. Well, well, let let me start because you know, I did say it that I I you know, if you asked me then, and some did, you know, if it's going to last for as long as yeah. it has, I probably would have said no. But maybe because, you know, I was just skeptical because of all the other leagues, right? Right. But but from the professionalism of the league, it was good from the beginning. I, I know it's not the same as it was. The money, you know, obviously the front office weren't, weren't as big. But it was first time where I felt this is at least a start. It's professionally done, right? I'll never forget when it, because, you know, first I went to Columbus and I'm like, Columbus, you know, and many wonder, like, why Columbus, right? But, you know, you know very well Mr. Hunt, right? Uh, Lamar Hunt. Yeah. I mean, you're from Kansas City. He's, uh, I mean, I was shocked because I didn't know who he was. I had zero idea other than somebody told me, well, he owns Kansas City, you know, but I was like, yeah, okay. You know, I mean, I, I watch NFL football, but it's not like I lived it and I would pay attention to, to the owners of the NFL. But when he be, I remember just flying in the first time and, and, and seeing him in the office. Mr. Lamar Hunt, I mean, working every day in the preseason, you know, I, I sort of remember, you know, I have a bad memory, but something stick in my mind. He's broken his arm, actually, you know, it, 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 and he was still in the office every day. And I was like, huh, like, you know, even in the indoors, the indoor leagues, like I never remember seeing owners for the most part anywhere, you know. Uh, in, in fact, a lot of them were hiding, you know, especially on a payday, you know, it was like, you know, in those indoor, indoor leagues, you know, when you got a check, you know, you, you, you sprinted to the nearest bank or the car be like, you know, let's see if this one clears, you know, I mean, I, I, it's true. I mean, many of my friends will tell you that, right? You get a paycheck and you're like, okay, let's see. Uh, but, you know, it was professionally done. Uh, Lamar Hunt was an incredible man. We all know that, but just in case some don't, uh, I, I will say that. He, I mean, he wanted the best uh, uh, for Columbus crew. He spent time, even though, I mean, he had the NFL team who was, I mean, that was obviously a massive, massive team, massive business and a massive league that we couldn't compare ourselves to and, and maybe still can't, right? Uh, so I, I respected that. And, you know, and from what I understand, other teams were similar, although obviously I wasn't, you know, in the front offices, you know, it was just 10 teams to start with. And and I thought that everything was professional. I really did. I felt th- this was, I think, the first time. Hmm. No, because I mean, 
Cleveland Forest was super professional too. But but maybe like for the first time, I first I felt like a true professional because it was an outdoor league that I actually said, okay, this has a chance. For how long? Uh, I I wasn't sure. Yeah. No, it's interesting. I also wanted to ask you because you were with Columbus Crew, and I've talked to Brad Friedel about this because he was with the Crew or like that first year we that the league together. started, and. You're playing in the shoe, horseshoe in uh, in Columbus, the Ohio State football stadium. And Brad always told me that he was convinced that the penalty boxes weren't regulation width, and that nothing was regulation width on that field. No, it was. Was it? Uh, was it the smallest one? I don't know. If it was San Jose the Spartan Stadium or ours? I think ours was smaller. <laughs> In terms of a width, I mean, it was a close call, right? Because if you remember Spartan Stadium, especially on that corner over there, it was kind of, you know, I, when I when I first walked, you know, it sort of reminds me a little bit of NYCFC now. You know, yeah. when I've called some games a couple of seasons ago, uh, you know, as well. But yes, I mean, obviously it wasn't the stadium that we wanted, but I, I don't think at that time we questioned any of that. It was small. It was okay. I think I, I appreciate the history of Ohio State football, you know, sure. the vastness of it. I'll never forget the, the, the first game against D.C., you know, Harksy coming in, Bruce Arena, and they were terrible just in the beginning. <laughs> it was funny because I remember, you know, that's when Brian McBride came on the scene, right? If you remember, yep. we won 4, four nothing against, against okay. D.C. United. I think they lost the opener up in San, the very first MLS game in history they lost in San Jose while Eric Rinaldo scored a goal yep. right uh, and then they came to, then they came to us that was the second game I believe and Brian McBride came on the scene you know number one draft pick out of college yeah. and two unbelievable goals one of them I still because people send me you know Bo Shiani you know yep. just punting the ball long and, and Brian scores a great goal and the stadium was a lot I, I, I couldn't believe it you know they you know it was 25,000 um, people which was a full house obviously they remember in the early days they kind of Cordon off the rest of the stadium, right. you know, with sound, whatever it was, uh, uh, and the sound in that stadium. Oh, you know, for the first, that was the first time that maybe I felt like I was in Europe. It, huh. it really was that. A, it was that electric. That that's how great that game was. And and we're like this disunited, you know, John Harks, Jeff Ager. We're like, well, what the? And they ended up losing early. And the funniest thing, of course, as we know it. Bruce just kind of flipped the script on that within the same season, and they won it. I mean, just 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 crazy how that season went because they they looked so bad in the beginning, and and all that matters is how you finish, though. And it's really interesting because you know Bruce almost got fired early on in that season when they were losing so much, and he recently with the Revolution had his first four game league losing streak since that opening to the '96 season when he was with DC United, which shows how much longevity and success Bruce Arena has had in this league. But pretty incredible stuff. And and just a couple more questions here, if that's okay. I, I've kept you here for a long time, but yeah, I yeah. just no, all enjoyed good. all of it. Um, present day questions here. You're going to be at the World Cup in Qatar later this year working for Polish television. Obviously, Poland is qualified. They're in Mexico's group. Um and Robert Lewandowski is Robert Lewandowski. Um, what are your thoughts on this U.S. team as it looks ahead in a few months to the World Cup? And what are your thoughts on the Poland team? I think the, the both sides are pretty similar. 
uh, in so many ways. Uh, uh, you know, uh, I think even in level of, I mean, we can look at the differences here, but that's not for today, you know, but, but I think they're similar in a way that I think both countries, first and foremost, have to appreciate being in the World Cup. And I know that sometimes not popular, maybe even more so here in the United States, you know, when you make those statements in Poland, I think people understand a little bit more, although, you know, when Poland doesn't make it, it's of course a big deal as well. But, uh, but, but I think we have to understand that it's, you know, it's a special event to, to, that that not not everybody's invited. You know what I mean? Like you always want right. to be there. It's this big ball, but you know, and, and sometimes we think ahead of ourselves. We think we should be doing better. We think you know. Obviously, we have we had a wake up call in the last World Cup. I mean, you know, look at Italy in the last World Cup, European champions who just didn't make it, and we have to understand that. We have to appreciate it, and I think we have to enjoy it. And, and you know, I'm, I'm speaking for both, by the way, because I'll be right. saying the same thing. You know, next month I'm going to Poland, and you know, commentating before Poland's play in uh, Holland, Belgium, and 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 Wales in in the League of Nations, and it'll be the same story because now everybody's going to be starting to get their pom poms out a little bit and saying what one or the other country can do. Right? Yeah, we must come out of the group. We must look. I get that when you go to when you compete or go to any event, you go there, you know, to win it because that's what you say, but you need to do well, right? I mean, that's why you go and you got to try to do well, but you also have to understand what that means. And, 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 uh, and so, so I think when I look at both countries, if, if I look at us, it's a little bit different in the sense that it's a, such a young team. So we don't really know what we're going to get. And there's some beauty in that. I kind of, I, I, I appreciate that because I, you know, a little bit like a box of chocolates, isn't it? You just don't, you never yeah. know what you're going to get with that team. It's young. Now we've, you know, I'm hoping that all the injuries that we've seen so far, Weston's coming back, although to this morning or yesterday, I saw that uh, Serginho Dest uh, uh, is injured uh, 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 once again. Um, so, but it almost seems in a way, I don't want to say it doesn't matter because those, you know, the two that I've mentioned, the Tyler Adams, you know, of course they matter. You'd like to have them there. But it's kind of funny because this team has gotten used to being young, being deeper, right? We've seen that uh, last, was it last summer where we, you know, we've beaten now Mexico, what, was it three times straight, right? And and we've beaten them in the, in the final of, of Nations League. We've beat them in the final of Gold Cup with not necessarily our top teams. What that means is that at least these young players kind of, you know, drive this train, if you will, and and it's for the first time where it's almost like a club team, a good club team, where in the past where your top players wasn't there, it would affect the mentality of, of, of the entire team. And I've been in those games. I remember when I was young, you know, 17, 18, 19, 20, where like our top guy was injured, we'd be like, oh my, you know, amongst each other, uh, who's going to score? How are we going to play? I think football is changing, as we know, with all these substitutions right now, with the depth of squad that you see in the club level and international level, where most importantly, managers for the first time in a long time starting to trust others. They no longer play a top player if they don't feel he's at 100%. They say, no, I have somebody, maybe not as good, but I trust him, I believe in him. That, that, that is what excites me about this U.S. team. It's young. We've finally turned the page because it was time. Maybe it was time before 
for you as to maybe say thank you to some of the veterans and introduce these young guys and, and trust them. But with that, as we know, with young players on an average such a young team, you know, it's going to be difficult. Group is not easy, that's for sure. But I, I think we've always... I like the you know being on uh, the underdog. I think we will be in some of those games, and these young players will take it in stride. In terms of Poland, you know, it's a last song for Robert Lewandowski, right? I mean, he's been good in qualifying. He's been good for the national team recently. Um, Poland has a new manager. Uh, I think Poland has benefited a little bit because they you know during the qualifying, Paulo Sosa left. I don't like the way he's left it, but, you know, it was a relatively easy group for Poland with the exception of England. And Poland shot themselves in the foot uh, against Hungary at home that were missing the best players where Paulo Sosa basically said, ah, Robert, you don't have to play in this game. Uh, Zielinski, who plays for Napoli, you don't have to. And we lost that game. And we got lucky. And when I say lucky, you know, I, I'm, I'm sure everybody's going to uh, understand because the first... First game was supposed to be against uh, uh, Russia in Moscow before you get to the final of the playoffs. And and because of the strategy, tragedy, uh, uh, you know, in Ukraine and all of that, indirectly Poland benefited from that because they didn't have to play that game. They went straight to uh, uh, playing Sweden in that one game where Sweden, of course, had to play Czech Republic, I think, if I remember. So, yeah. so it's a it, 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 different role for Poland. They've gotten there. Even though I think most people, there was a period of time where, where I remember commenting those games saying, mm, I don't know, I don't know. Because Sweden's been, uh, uh, I mean, one of those teams that Poland never enjoyed playing. I mean, our record, even European championships, we lost 3-2 in the summer. Um, Poland lost 3-2. So anyway, I, I'm, I'm relatively optimistic. As you know, first game, first game, World Cup or European championships, the Copa America, first group game, can't lose. If that happens, yep. then I always think that you can. Interesting. Uh, there is a Polish-American player, Gagas Lunina, 17-year-old goalkeeper. He's starting for the Chicago Fire. He's been called into the U.S. men's national team camp on a few occasions now. Great future ahead of him. Not fully committed to the U.S. or to Poland yet. And the Polish coach is in Chicago last week presenting him with a Poland shirt and he's going to call him in to Poland games. What's going to happen here? What do you see? Well, I've been talking about it, you know, for obvious reasons. Everybody's been asking, you know, when I'm in Poland, when I'm here with the, you know, I spoke with some people in U.S. Uh, soccer, um, not at the high, highest level, but look, I mean, ultimately, as always, it's his decision. You know, I've had the same decision, but it, it was totally different, right? I mean, you know, for me, you know, back in those days, there's, you know, I mean, no television that, you know, because people ask me, if, if you had a chance to play for Poland, would you? And I said, I would definitely give it a shot. And that would be something that I would say to him. He needs to go and see it for himself. And I know Greg is open to that. I know mm -hmm. he's been with, with others. I mean, obviously, you know, ideal situation is the U.S. wants him. You know, he's been in camp for the U.S. And maybe, you know, Greg would say, well, yeah, ideally it would be if he commits to, to, to United States. But you have to understand that, right? You have to understand the fact that uh, 
it's something that he wants to try. I mean, the difference, you know, I was born in Poland, lived there till I was 17, came here. He's been born here, but, you know, obviously his parents and everybody, I don't know him personally. I haven't had a chance to speak with him. I'm sure if he gets the call, which I think he will for the Nations League games, I'll be commentating those games. I'll, you know, I'll, I'll, I'll chat with him a little bit about just in general, just to say hi. But I could understand that he wants to see it for himself because, you know, I mean, that's something that that's obviously important to him, to his parents. He understands where he comes from, or at least his family, and he has an opportunity and he's being asked to come and see. I mean, you know, he won't have to make a commitment on the spot for, you know, so... I think the worst thing would be to say yes and then regret it that you've never done it before. And and so I think if he does get the call from everything that I know and I you know I used to talk to Greg a lot, I talked to him a little bit less privately, uh, but obviously talked to him uh you know being ESPN or Sirius Radio. I think from what I understand he's open for players to go and see for themselves because he doesn't want to be the one that stops somebody's wish, right? And then in the end it's going to be his decision, right? And we don't know that. I don't think we should meddle with it. Um it's not our job, it's not our business. Uh whatever that decision will be, I I think we have to respect it. I mean, who are we at least in the media and the press to say I can't believe and what's he thinking? I mean, come on. That's life. It's bigger than life sometimes, right? Yeah, no, definitely. Janusz Michalik works for ESPN and Sirius XM in the United States and TVP Sport in Poland. Janusz, thanks so much for coming on the show. Thanks, Grant. I had a great time. I appreciate it. Thanks for listening to Football with Grant Wall. I'd like to thank Janusz Michalik as well as producer and pundit Chris Whittingham. You can now sign up for a free or paid subscription to my newsletter at grantwall.com. The best way to support my work is by taking out a paid subscription. See you next time.